For many, life is becoming increasingly hopeless. It feels like there is trouble on every side. The Pew Research Center says that in the early 1990s, about 90% of U.S. adults identified as Christians. As of 2021, that number is now 63%. Meanwhile, those who now identify as religiously unaffiliated have grown from 5% to 29% over the same period. Is this a coincidence? Where can we find hope in an increasingly secular age? That's our topic today on Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, here on previous episodes of Craving Answers, Craving God, we have cited evidence that people are increasingly lonely and discouraged. I think you have used the word epidemic to describe this malaise. Before we talk about hopelessness, let's review the current state of despair in our culture. Uh, Yeah, it's... uh... Just anecdotally, hopelessness is pervasive. It's um, I, I I don't talk I, I talk to people all the time who, I mean, they're some of them are trying hard and some of them aren't trying hard. Some of them are optimists, some of them are pessimists. But what frequently combines all of them together is the sense that things are headed in a increasingly wrong direction and things are getting worse. My uh, daughter is uh, this coming weekend singing in a. Um, one of those music festivals that, um, you know, the state music educators associations will put on where kids try out for the orchestra, for the band or for the choir, and then they'll meet all day and they'll have a, um, rehearse with it with an expert conductor. And then they'll put on a short concert in the evening for the families and friends. It's really great experience. But I was looking through the music that is, um, that one of the choirs is singing and there's a song that's being sung that's just absolutely hopeless, and it's a social justice song, and uh, uh, it's it's I don't have any problem with with wanting social justice, but the 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 song is about how everything is wrong and it's all going south. Half of us are sinners, it says. We're living underground now. It's another line, and I, I just thought this is. Cra- this is crazy. Like you're going to this jazz concert and these middle school kids are singing about how life is miserable and nothing's going to get better. And all we can do is hope that we, the good guys, will last longer than them, the bad guys. And I think a lot of people have this sense that everything is just bad and getting worse. I, the Journal of American Medical Association almost 10 years ago published a study in which they said that one in six Americans were on antidepressants. And um, I, I saw recently that since 2020, since uh, since COVID, that number has risen more than 20 percent. So, and, and I, I'm not, I, I'm not anti antidepressants at all. But but I do think it's important for us to ask the question: Why? Why is this happening? What, you, you know, if there was any sort of disease where one in six people were affected by it, we would call it an epidemic, and we would be desperate to get to the root of what's causing this. And somehow with the hopelessness in our society, we've all just decided, we've made our choice, we've decided to live with hopelessness. I, I know that we don't like that. Uh, oh, uh, President Obama ran an incredibly successful campaign arguing presciently for 
what we need is hope. That was kind of his big message. And it just, it touched a chord with tons and tons of people. We know we need it. We crave it. Um, why is it we don't have it? I think that's what we want to talk about today. And how can we get it back? How can we have hope? Here in the early 2020s, we see more people who identify as not religious or sometimes called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and fewer people identify as Christians. Is there a correlation there? Yeah, and I, I this is, um, I mean, I, I, I definitely believe, yes, it's a controversial topic uh, because, uh, you, you know, the, the, the word on the street uh, for the past uh, hundreds of thousands of years is that religion is oppressive. And um, so the temptation is to think that religion actually takes away hope. I, I, I would argue that it's actually our only chance for real hope is God. The person who, uh, this was a request from a listener that we talk about this, and, and the, the, um, what they wanted us to talk about specifically was living hope in a secular age. And what I think that they're asking, and what I think is real, is that in a secular age, in an age without God, hopelessness can exist. We tried it. We, it the, the Enlightenment 300 years ago thought, we love. We love what Christianity has brought. We love the values of equity, and we love morality, and we love justice, and we love the belief that we are headed somewhere good. Christian eschatology says that the kingdom of God is coming. But we don't like God anymore. We don't want God around. Let's kill God off, but we'll still keep all of the hope and all of the, all of the morality. And uh, what we've realized 300 years on is that you can't have one without the other. And we don't want God, so we've decided, well, we'll just live without hope. And I, I do think there's definitely a correlation. And, and the, the correlation is also on the other side to the extent that people tap into um, the hope that is offered by God in Jesus Christ, the promise of a future kingdom, the promise that things are going to be better, people will have real genuine hope. So as you've described it, perhaps we have a situation where people are saying, yeah, Christianity, you had your day, good job, but now we're looking for something better. We're looking for something that works and is more meaningful. Or do you think it's more likely that people who are leaving Christianity are saying, you screwed things up. You're the problem. You're not the solution. Christianity, you're the problem. And they have contempt for really religion in general. Which of the two do you think is more likely to be true? I think that people are, broadly speaking, Christianity has been uh, popular. I'll put that in scare quotes. It's been popular to the extent that it's been able to be co-opted. If there's a society where it works for the government to have a group of people who will support that as part of their religious belief, that government will approve of Christianity, and it will be valuable. It will be valuable to that government. It will be popular. Um, if, if there's an economic system where uh, Christianity benefits that, you know, the Protestant work ethic has definitely been a boon to capitalism. To, to that extent, Christianity will be popular. Real genuine Christianity, the claims that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe and demands our 100% allegiance, 
those have never been popular. And when those claims become highlighted over against any sort of advantage that one might get from being a Christian, Christianity will like you'll you'll see people drift away. I uh, I was a pastor at a large church, uh, and one of the things we noticed is that we had a, a membership of over a thousand, and when Christianity was sort of accepted, when people would say, "Oh, Christianity's helpful," you, you know, I mean, I might not necessarily be a Christian, but uh, the system of morality is kind of beneficial, and Christians are nice people. Uh, you know, our, our our membership was kind of at one level, level A. And uh, as soon, though, as the cultural tide started to turn and people would say out loud, Christianity, I don't just disagree with it, I find it offensive. And that became more and more popular to, 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 to find, popular is the wrong word, when it became more and more widespread to see Christianity as a drag on society, we saw our numbers go down in correlation with that. I mean, I would argue that, I'm not saying that anybody, the, the people who left weren't Christians, I'm not saying that at all. But it's easy to be a Christian when it's popular. It's hard to be a Christian when it's unpopular. And I think that what's happened is is that real genuine Christianity, people who come face to face with the mystery of God made human, people who come face to face with the radical demands of the Jewish construction worker Jesus, that he is the Lord of us. People who come face to face with that and say, okay, I'm in, are there and are always going to be there. And, uh, by the way, always have hope. When I say always, I don't mean that they're always positive and peppy, but there's always this underlying reality to their lives that things are going to be okay, that God will make all the bad things come untrue and will make everything right. Those who don't have that, though, those who are left with, I'm going to float on the cultural tides or I'm going to uh, I'm going to find my hope and meaning in uh, personal fitness or in increasing my bank account or uh, you know finding a new set of attractive friends those people will live end up living without hope and I, I think that's kind of where we're at so when you say God will make everything how did how did you put it God will make everything good we'll fix fix everything right yeah did you mean in this life or in the next life uh yes already in this life, but not yet completely in this life. Uh, one of the things I found is, um, you know, I've sat with people who've lived their lives and are drawing near to the end of their lives, sometimes on their deathbeds. And what I found is, is that there's not a correlation between those people's happiness, feelings of success, and the amount of money that they've had, or uh, uh, you know, the amount of vacations that they've taken or the amount of friends that they've had uh, or the amount of career success that they've accomplished. And there's actually a correlation between, um, and, and I know I'm a Christian pastor, so a lot of the people I talk to on their deathbeds are, are Christians. There's actually a correlation between um, the hope that they've had over their life, that God is active in making things well, the way they've seen that play out in their lives, even through incredibly tough times, frequently in the middle of incredibly tough times. These are, and we all know people who, um, I'll just say as, as, a, as a Christian pastor, I've talked to people who just go through miserable experiences, the loss of a child or uh, the loss of a home or the, the, uh, the unjust firing from a job. And people who have this underlying 
hope will weather those storms. They will be very sad, sometimes crushed, but they will weather these storms because of their belief that those things are going to be made right someday. Those who don't, those who like their hope is in in some sort of non-Christian value. I I don't, by value is the wrong word too. Their hope is not in Jesus. I'll just say it that way. They they are crushed by, you know, if, if your hope is financial success, when your business fails, it is devastating, devastating. If your hope is in my kids, the success of my kids, when one of them doesn't succeed, doesn't college doesn't work out for them, or even worse, when um, one of them passes away, it is devast- It tears marriages apart. It tears families and people apart. Um, really, and I've kind of drifted away from what your original question was, but uh, what I'm what, what I'm hoping to argue for is is that real genuine hope, the thing that gets you through a pandemic, or the thing that gets you from the loss of a family member or the loss of a job. Jesus is really the only thing that works well for this. Perhaps there is a so-called secular person listening now, a secular person who is among those who are lonely and lacking hope. In his mind, the last thing he wants to hear about is the quote-unquote Christian fairy tale. How would you approach that listener on the topic of hope? I would say, uh, well, what I would do is, uh, not just to avoid the conversation, but to pass them off to people who can say this better than me, is if they're fairly well-read and intelligent, I would point them to, uh, there's a book that G.K. Chesterton wrote about 100 years ago called Orthodoxy. And, and in this book, Chester, it's, it's, uh, I would highly recommend our listeners getting a copy and reading it, but I will warn you that Chesterton is a fascinating and brilliant writer, but it is slow going. I, I don't mean it's. I, I don't mean it's boring. I mean it's just thick. But thankfully, you're gonna it's have to think book. a little bit. Yes, you'll have to think a little bit. That's okay. It, it's uh, good to stretch those brain muscles every once in a while. In orthodoxy, basically, the whole point of the book Orthodoxy is to say this: is we've stripped any sense of the magic, the mystery, the supernatural out of our lives as good secularists, and what we're left now with is the insane asylum. And he actually makes this point, is that we wanted to understand, we wanted to make logical sense of everything. We didn't want to have any sort of like mystery. And so what we have now is the lunatic asylum. And, and, and he, he says it there at one point, uh, the word lunatic asylum comes from the word lunar, which is about the moon. It's this belief that, you know, that comes from the belief that full moon, people get crazy. That's what the word lunatic comes from. Actually says that's a good analogy because, you know, you can look at the moon and you can understand it, but it doesn't make sense of your life. You can't see anything around you because of it. I know a full moon, you you can see the vague outlines of things around you. The sun, on the other hand, you can't look at it. It's mystery. You can't understand it. Your eyes cannot behold it. And yet it lights up everything around you. It makes sense of the whole world around you. Now we've traded the sun for the moon. We've traded mystery for rationality. We've traded the, 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 the deep, cosmic, all-encompassing spiritual power of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for just materialism. And now what happens is we can't make sense of the entire world. We, we understand it. We, everything that we think that we know, we believe that we understand. Like the moon, we can look at it. 
and yet it doesn't make sense of the world around us. And he actually, there's a chapter in this book where he actually talks about fairy tales. And he says fairy tales are the truest stories of all time because fairies tap, fairy tales tap into the reality of mystery in the world. We've lost that because we've tried to make everything understandable and rational. And if we, I would just encourage this person, okay, you don't like fairy tales, I get it. They're for little kids, they're for dumb people. Actually, they're for people who have hope. They're for people who believe and know that God is going to make everything better. So I would say, you just have to get over that. If you want, you have a choice. You have a choice. Like I said earlier, you have a choice. You can either, um, you can't have Christian, you can't have Christian hope without Jesus Christ. If you want Christian hope, you have to have Jesus Christ. You cannot have hope without Jesus. I'll get one more. I, I, uh, I just cut you off a little bit there, Chuck. Let me say one more thing. I was listening to a podcast with, and I might have mentioned this specific podcast episode. It was an interview of Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, the historian. Tom Holland was a self-described agnostic. He still says, as, 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 uh, last I checked, Tom Holland still says, I don't know where I'm at in regards to the person of Jesus. I don't know. But he's getting closer and closer to, 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 to Jesus. And and he was asked in this, he's a secular historian, written many massive books about ancient Greek, Roman, Persian history. He was asked, what is it that you like? What is it that draws you to Christianity? And he paused and he said this. He said, when Christians try to explain Christianity and make logical sense of it and dumb it down, I find it detestable. I hate it. But, he says, when I go into a church on Christmas Eve and I sit in the middle of deep liturgy and I sing ancient hymns and I think, there's something bigger here than me. There's something deep that is being connected to here that just my brain can't wrap itself around. I find myself almost irresistibly drawn to it. And that's what, that's what I would say to this person. It's like, you've got to, you got to have the mystery. You got to have the fairy tale. If you want hope. Almost experiencing a hope that he doesn't experience on any other average day. Yeah. I think when we use the word hope, we mean to communicate a desire or an aspiration that is uncertain. Paul says in Romans 8, 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope is that, uh, I'm sorry, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? That makes sense to me. Now I want to live forever. I long for eternal life. That's my hope. Because I haven't seen it yet, is my hope uncertain? Well, so, so hope, yeah, I mean, you're right. That's the way we use the word hope. Uh, you know, Obama talks about hope. And some people were happy with his presidency and some people weren't. It wasn't a guarantee. The hope was that things would, you know, what he tapped into was was a desire for hope, was a desire for a world that would satisfy our hopes. Normally we use the word hope like that. I hope the Cardinals win next year. That's the baseball team I root for. Uh, you know, I, I, I hope my kids are healthy, those sorts of things. And what we mean is it's a desire that, like you said, it's a desire that we're not certain of the outcome of it. However, um, if the outcome is certain, if the outcome is certain, then the hope takes on a different flavor. It's not just, it's still hope, this anticipation and longing for things to be good, but it's also locked in. It's, 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 you know, it's, we would, humans would use the word 
you know, you, you believe in it, you, you trust in it, you know it's going to be true. Like I, I can say, I hope the Cardinals win next year, but there's really a good chance that that's not going to happen. In fact, I would say it's a pretty, pretty solid chance the Cardinals are going to be a losing team next year. If I say I'm going on vacation next month and I hope it's a good time, that's actually getting closer because almost always when I go on vacation, I have a good time. I plan vacations that my, my family and I go on. Because I plan to go to places and do things that's enjoyable for all of us. And so when I start talking about like the hope of next month's vacation, it's getting a little bit closer to certainty. If I say to my wife, I hope dinner's good tonight, she might say, what, what are you talking about? Dinner's good every night. Everything I make is good. And she's, and she's totally right. That sort of hope is what we're talking about. So what, we're, what, what, what Christians are saying is, is that our hope is guaranteed. Now, you need a hope that's guaranteed. A hope that's not, here's the thing about hope is that if it's not guaranteed, it's not any good. If I really, really hope this doctor's visit goes well, but I don't know if it's going to, and there's a chance that the doctor's going to end up saying you've got cancer, that hope does me no good until I know, until I know that I don't have cancer or that I'm perfectly healthy or whatever the scenario is. See, hope for it to count has to be something you can depend on. And that's why it's trying to tell the seculars in our society that you can't have hope if you have nothing to depend on. You cannot have hope if you think that the world economic system is going to crash sometime in your lifetime. You cannot have hope. This is the problem that I have with this jazz song that um, the kids are singing at at the concert this weekend. If you say we want social justice, but we don't think it's gonna happen, that's not hope. That's devastating. I mean, you can wish for it, but that hope does you no good. It's not solid. And so what you need is something foundational. You need a promise that could be paid out. And God says, I am going to make all things good. I'm so invested in this. I've put all my chips. I've shoved all my chips into the middle of the table, God says. I've become a human being to make this happen. That's a hope that you can rely on. When the God, the sovereign king of the universe says, I'm going to make it good, you can rely on that. But you got to have the sovereign king of the universe. You can't do it on your own. Then there is this from verse 1 in the book of Hebrews, quote, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of right. things yeah. not seen. Now here is a hope, apparently, that is certain, a hope that has assurance, a hope that brings with it conviction. How does this verse inform our discussion? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's what we're saying. You know, faith is the substance of things hoped for. What, do you, what it's recognizing is, is that the benefits are always out there. They're out there in front of us, future-wise. You get to taste a little bit of them now. But as long as there's sin and evil and brokenness in the world, there's always pushback against this. Everybody agrees with this. Everybody agrees that that things are wrong. And what Christians are saying is is that what's out in front of us is not more evil eventually. It's good. And but but you, you can't see that. You can't have that that there's there's no, you know, there's no like there's no trigonometry calculator that you can do a function that will guarantee that certainly that will show it to you. There's no movie theater where you can go to, to to see the future and to see played out on the screen exactly how everything's going to be in the future, locked down certain. So what we say is that's faith. Everybody has faith. Do you have faith that your only hope is political power? 
Do you have faith that your only hope is your good health? Do you have faith that your only hope is increased finances? Or the other option is, I I guess I said everybody has faith. I guess you could just believe that everything's going to be evil and horrible. It's a certain kind of bad faith to trust in that things are just falling apart and nothing's going to ever be good. This is, this is, I mean, this is what the existentialist realized in the 1950s, post-World War II, is without God, there's complete hopelessness. All you have left is you stick your lower lip out and you clench your teeth and you, you firm your shoulders and you wait for death to come. And, and they were right. Without God, that's what it's so for. But what this text that you just read is saying is, is that faith in the Jesus who's going to make everything better who's in the process of making everything better, who from the cross and the empty tomb has guaranteed that everything is going to be right in the end. Faith in Jesus pays out in this hope becoming actualized in the future. Twice in Psalm 42, we read these words, quote, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Unquote. Not hope in self, not hope in government, not hope in worldly pursuits, but hope in God. How does this hope in God transform our lives? I don't know if we've already plowed this ground, but we need to crystallize this. We need to bring it into clear focus. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've kind of, you're right, we've already plowed this ground. I've said it a couple times. I, well, I think that what this text adds that might be new is if you look at the context in Psalm, especially in the middle chunk of Psalms, David's David is cast down. His soul is cast down, to use his language there, quite a bit. You know, he talks about drenching his bed with tears. He talks about his bones aching. All of these are like classic depression symptoms. Um, this is not saying that like d- depression. You just get hey, listen to our podcast and you'll be cured. This is not saying this. It's, it's not saying that everything is nice and rosy. It's saying that the cure for depression has to involve, there's lots of other things that will involve it. It could, could, could involve counseling. It could involve therapy. It could involve antidepressants. It could involve some mixture of all of these things. One thing it has to involve, though, if, it's going, if you're going to be cured, is telling yourself, why are you cast down? Hope in God. Hope in God. He will raise you up. That's You have to do that. If, if there's no God, the antidepressants aren't going to work. If there's no God, the therapy's not going to work. If there's no God, the self-help books are not going to work. If there's no God, the stiff upper lip's not going to work. You, 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 have to have, you have to have God. It doesn't It doesn't cure everything right now, but what it does is gives hope. Look, you can weather... All of us are going to go through depression to some extent. Some of us, it's chronic. It's long-term. We're in the one in six that the Journal of American Medical Association talks about. Do you want to weather that? You have to have hope. You have to know that, that God is going to fix this and make this better. So we know that loneliness, depression is on the way up statistically. And not only are people lonely and depressed, but suicide rates have increased. That just adds a new layer of alarm to what we're talking about. 
and if we want to even think about it in a worse way, this involves large numbers of young people, people who have their whole lives ahead of them, people who are in a position to really be hopeful because there's so much that they can anticipate and think about. They're so depressed that they kill themselves. So I'm thinking maybe there's somebody who is listening to us who is in that place, is in that dark place, and maybe have tried a half a dozen or so things that the world is telling them to do to emerge from their loneliness, and it's just not working. Everything is a dead end. And then they hear the pastor talking about hope in God. But for them, there is no bridge to that. When they think about, well, I I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, it didn't work. And now the pastor is talking about hope in God. You know what? I think I'd like to try that because nothing else has worked. But I don't know. I, I don't know which way to face. I don't know which way to look up. I have no connection. What can you offer? Well, yeah, so I would say that if somebody is suicidal right now, the first thing they need to do is call a suicide hotline. Uh, They're going to get hope there? No, but you need, you, need to, you need to do something desperate right now. You need somebody to talk to right now at this moment who says, you know, hey, stop what you're doing. Thank. Let me get somebody to you. Um, but people who commit suicide frequently, it's a thought-out decision. Sometimes, though, like Martin Luther wrote this letter to um, the wife of a man who had committed suicide, and she writes him this letter and says, I don't know what happened. Uh, is he still is he a Christian? And Luther wrote back and said, uh, yes. Sometimes, he says, Satan murders people. And sometimes suicide works like that. Sometimes, and frequently, people who are family and friends of suicide, uh, people who have committed suicide— will say we had no clue you know they were happy they were talkative they seemed like everything was going sometimes not sometimes it's a long slow you can see the build up but i would say if that's you right now uh, call a suicide hotline for for the the rise of the rise of suicides in our culture is simply because people have stopped believing the secular lie and our the younger you are the more likely you are to see through the lie that we took away God, but you can still be happy. Look, go to college, get a great degree, make a good steady income, buy a McMansion. Like you can be happy. Our kids know that that's a bunch of crap, that that doesn't work, that that's a lie. And so they aren't going to believe, you know, the, the, uh, the baby boomers and the Gen X's, they have their own system for making stuff happy, and it's not worked out. And the existentialists saw this, like I said, 70 years ago, and our kids are starting to see it too. Now, if you're sick of that, I would say you need to find you need to find a good Christian church and go and talk to the pastor and say, I want hope. I want hope. How can you help me? If you don't want to talk to anybody, I would say, Find a church, do the Tom Holland thing. Go to a church where the mystery is embraced, where the bigger than us is embraced, where the power of God is pointed towards, and go and sit in the middle of that mystery 
and think there's something more than I there's something more here than I have bargained for. And of course that that, that would be your first step. The second step is get involved in Christian community, uh, read the Bible, pray and ask God, hey God, I've always like you know discounted you and maybe I've maybe I've believed in you, maybe I haven't, but you've always been kind of on the margins. I need more than what this culture is giving me. Like, can you help me out here? But pray and ask him. Get all if you, like if you're real desperate, uh, and if if you're in our area in the St. Louis area, you can get a hold of me. If you're not in the St. Louis area, email me. I can help you find a community of people who can help you walk through this. But don't be content. Don't so here's what I say. Don't double down on the secular culture's lies and be like, well, money hasn't made me happy. I'll try physical fitness or physical fitness hasn't made me happy or marriage hasn't made me happy. I'm really going to invest in work. Don't jump from one secular lie to the other. Go to God, realize that he's invested himself deeply in you by becoming a human being, dying on the cross, rising for the dead from you. Go to him and find the mystery that can bring hope if you believe in it. Last question for the person who is, a Christian, a faithful Christian, believes in Jesus Christ, is looking forward to eternal life, in other words, pretty solid in his or her situation, and upbeat about things in adversity and out of it. That person can sometime have, I'll call it an aura of hopefulness, that a person who is hopeless sees the hopeful person and says, man, I don't know what he or she's got. But that's what I'd like to have. So that person, the hopeless person, approaches the Christian seeking whatever it is you've got, I'd like to have it. How does the Christian person who is hopeful respond to that hopeless person in that moment? Well, I mean, you should invite them into that. You should say, come and hang out with me. Let's be friends. Let's go get something to drink. Let's go play around the golf. Let's go take a walk. And and not like you don't even really need to say anything super deep or powerful, but to pull people into a life of hope. You're not quoting scripture in that moment? Maybe sometimes, but maybe not. Christians don't always walk around quoting scripture. Uh, But to to pull, this is how people come to Christianity nowadays is they meet a community of people and that community of people has something deep and hopeful. They're attracted to it. They hang around. They end up becoming Christians. That's what I would say to do is just pull them into your life. I would don't. I would say, probably the move there is not to say, "Well, I'll give you three Bible verses and you know go away and read those Bible verses and you'll be fine." I would say hold off on that. Invite them into relationship with you. I'm talking to the Christians now. Invite them into a relationship with you. Make them food. Hang out with them. Go to their house and eat their food and just be friends with people. People are drawn to people who have this hope and. Pull people into that community. Otherwise known as love your neighbor? Yeah, like in a real, and this is not just like to do nice things for them, but to include them, to give them free welcome into a world where the belief that God is going to make all things good again is actually a reality. Thanks for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God. More and more people tell us that they are listening to our podcast. One kind listener said that upon discovering the program, she binged the first 15 shows. If you enjoy these discussions, please tell your friends about Craving Answers, Craving God. 
For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rathard.